As we reflect on, on this idea, this, this completing the dream, and this particular session in reference to white supremacy, I, I've been disturbed and challenged as we are in this very unique moment historically, but also a very unique moment as we reflect 50 years on the assassination of an incredible prophet in this nation, a person by the name of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I do not say commemorate, because you do not commemorate murder. And you do not have an anniversary celebration for someone who has been assassinated. You must reflect. And so in reference to that reflection, uh, there is this idea that has just kind of bubbled up in my spirit. And this idea is, can America be saved? And that is the idea that I want to discuss with you on this day. Can, can America be saved? It is very interesting. It is uh, Vincent Harding in his book, Martin Luther King Jr., The Inconvenient Hero, that he borrows from a poet by the name of Carl Wendell Himes. And this particular poet lifts up the way that America views one of the greatest prophets that America has ever produced, that being Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in this poem, he says something that I believe that is so true, John. He says, now that he is safely dead, let us praise him. Build monuments to his glory, sing hosannas to his name. Dead men make such convenient heroes. They cannot rise to challenge the images we would fashion from their lives. And besides, it's easier to build monuments than make a better world. So now that he is safely dead, we, with, with ease conscience, we'll tell our children that he was a great man, knowing that the cause for which he lived is still a cause, and the dream for which he died is still a dream, a dead man's dream. We like our prophets dead, for they're, they're easy to manage. They require nothing from us and have been placed in the ground. Monuments require no moral courage. It's easier to build a monument than to get consensus on Capitol Hill that our children are being restricted by poverty. I wonder many times, can, can America be saved? If our nation is to be saved from uh, the fallacy of race, uh, the brutality of misogyny, the cruelty of homophobia, and the poison of xenophobia, we must lend our ear to the prophetic sounds articulated by a southern black preacher. Uh, named Martin Luther King Jr. He gives us not only the blueprint, but dares take hold of our faith with a vibrancy rarely seen in evangelical circles or in liberal pockets. I'm haunted by Dr. King. I'm haunted by the death of his commitment, I'm challenged by the, his fierce hope, and still disturbed by our nation's inability to harness moral courage in the same manner as King, and as Baird Rustin, and as Fannie Lou Hamer, James Baldwin, and Septima Clark. If we are to save the nation, we must have the tenacity to recognize the history of this imperfect union. There are people who love to say that we are the United States of America. I would say and borrow from W.E.B. Du Bois, we are the yet-to-be United States of America. That there are still great challenges that we face as, as, as a nation. And this raises the question, so if we are to attack white supremacy, 
And there must be a courage that bubbles up in our soul where we are willing to speak truth to power. Speak truth to power in this day and age. Because there is a fight taking place. For those of us who gathered in this space, we are on the forefront. We are on the lines. We are in the foxholes for this fight if we are going to dismantle what can literally destroy the future of our children. And the question that we must raise is, what shall we be? What type of nation? Shall we be a country where Confederate rhetoric and antebellum ideals are the norm for civic discourse? Or shall we be a nation where revolutionary love, Valerie, and just action falls from the lips of our children, demanding that we become a more perfect union? Shall we allow fear uh, to redecorate literally the spaces in our heart and with coffee tables of bigotry and cabinet stock with policies to dehumanize the poor? When we speak truth to power, it must be more than intellectual analysis. But our words and our movement must be baptized in a, a revolutionary love, a love, a spirit uh, that cannot be measured by any scientist but felt within your soul that something is rumbling and going on. We must walk and engage a truth with two fundamental ideals. Uh, these ideals are one being love and the other being justice. Now, if we were to operate out of South Africa, we would call it Ubuntu. Ubuntu simply means that my humanity and my spirit is wrapped up in you. If you destroy me, you destroy part of yourself because we are deeply connected together. I like to place it this way, that you have to walk with love and justice. Why do we have to walk with love and justice? Because love by itself is not enough and justice by itself is not enough. Because justice by itself can easily become, as my father has said, can become legalism or brutality. And love by itself is just simply, in the words of Martin Luther King, sentimentality. But when love and justice walk down the aisle and get married and consummate their relationship, they produce two, two children, one called transformation and the other called liberation. And we must recognize that these are the two ideals that we must function with if we are to save a nation. Or maybe, as some would say, maybe the nation doesn't need to be saved that we have to raise these fundamental questions. And I know that in this day and age, sometimes people get down because they look and see what's happening in the White House and they say, oh Lord, what is going on? We've been trumped by this individual. <laughs> they look at a Jeff Sessions and they get worried about what's going on, but, but I can't fall, I don't have time for despair. The reason I do not have time for despair, because what I do is I reflect on what my ancestors did in the midst and in the face of the most fervent and intractable white supremacy that anyone could ever witness. I'm brought to mind of an ancestor, a person by the name of Robert Smalls and a woman by the name of Hannah Smalls. Many people have never heard these individuals, but I've got to tell you a story that's going to knock your socks off about Robert and Hannah Smalls. They were born as enslaved Africans in South Carolina, Beaufort, South Carolina, to be exact. And there they were, considered to simply be property and a problem simultaneously, but it was Robert Smalls and Hannah Smalls who made a decision. They said that they would not allow their children to grow up and be considered to be things, that they would escape to freedom. But they escaped to freedom unlike anybody had ever escaped to freedom before. Robert Smalls worked on a Confederate warship and with six other Africans, while they were acting like they were serving, they were observing those who were running the ship. 
They were observing how you pull this lever and how you do this and what are the appropriate calls as you are navigating in the harbor of South Carolina. And so one night when uh, the two quote-unquote captains decided to go get drunk and find some other individuals to hang out with, they made their plan to escape under the cover of darkness. Six Africans, along with their children, boarded this particular ship, and when they boarded the ship, they then made a plan to say that we're going to leave the harbor. And when they left the harbor, they had to pass by one particular area where they had to give the appropriate signs to let them out of the harbor. Otherwise, they would be fired on. So they found the person who had the lightest skin and put him out on the front of the bow. And then he started throwing up the signs. And then the captain let them go. They made their way into farther into the harbor. You would think that they found freedom at that moment, but they did not find freedom. It was still under the cover of darkness. And as they moved out of the harbor there in Charleston, South Carolina, there was a blockade going on. This was in 1862. The blockade from the north that any Confederate ship that you are to see, you are to fire upon. And so as they were moving out, they saw, a, a, they saw a ship that was from the Union Army. And they knew that once they got close enough, they would blast them out of the water. But it was Hannah Smalls who had the idea, find a white tablecloth and run it up the pole to say that we surrender. But there was another problem, that it was still under the cover of darkness and also fog had settled. And so now they're moving along, and the ship is calling, saying that they must surrender. And the story goes that those on the ship called the Onward, that was a Union vessel, were training their guns on this ship that was coming forward to them. And there they were, about to be blasted out of the water. But as if on cue, the sun rose up all of a sudden, and they could see that there was a flag waving and they gave up the ship. But then all of these white soldiers saw something they could not believe when they boarded the ship. They didn't find any white people. <laughs> they boarded the ship and they said, how did this happen? It's not possible. You are only three-fifths of a human being. And Robert Small says, I present this ship for Abraham Lincoln. We are coming to the North to be free. He not only doesn't stop there, it gets gooder. <laughs> he not only goes North, but the entire South then puts a hit out on his life and his family's life. Not, not just South Carolina, the entire South. All of the Confederacy, because they were afraid that if other black people heard about Robert Smalls, that there would be liberated ships everywhere. And not only did it stop, did not stop there, Robert Smalls joined the Union Army and became the first African captain in the Union Army. But it didn't stop there. He then moved back south and started four schools for people who had been denied education. And then, this is going to blow your mind, <laughs> bought the plantation where he used to be a slave. <laughs> Gets even crazier. He then allowed the widow of the slave owner not to live in a big house, but in a small house in the back. And then he decided to do something that had not happened before. He ran for Congress and he won. So the foundation for an Obama was set by Robert Smalls. But here is the thing, when you ask Robert Smalls, why did you do it? He simply says this. He says, I had to do it for my children. I had to do it because I serve a God that was different from the God of the slave owner. 
He serves a God that is about capital and markets. I serve a God about love and justice. And this becomes the critical piece that if we are going to dismantle, dismantle white supremacy, that we must begin to speak truth to power and even understand where white supremacy comes from. It's, it is America's sick gift to the world. Why do I say it's America's sick gift to the world? Because if you begin in 1619, there was nothing known specifically as white supremacy. What we knew that there was the othering of other people. But the idea of racism and race and the social construction of race is something that really comes about in the 1700s. Because it was black people who were brought here. Some of them were indentured servants, but they were not considered to be uh, biologically evil as racism states. Not until there was something known as the Bacon Rebellion in Virginia, when indentured servants, those who were white, and Africans who had been enslaved got together and said, the real problem is that guy who owns that house over there. And that was a part of the Bacon Rebellion. And as a result, something happened. In the words of David Rodiger, there was given the wages of whiteness. For those who were poor and who were white, uh, who were poor, they would simply say, well, we're not going to give you more land. We're not going to give you more property. But we will say that you have privilege over those who are black. We will create a hierarchy and design a race of people who are now called white. There was no existence of, of whiteness. Many of you in here, you are only white when black folks show up or people who have a different color. It is true because when you go to Europe, they don't say, hey, white people. They ask if you are an American. They ask about one's ethnicity. That race, the social construction is unique in America and it has been exported across the globe. And as a result of that exporting, we now view things through that particular hierarchy. And how do we break it? Well, we have to be able to speak truth to power and be able to deconstruct these particular ideals. Just as Robert Small says, I do it for my children, that we must be able to deconstruct these ideas. But the other thing is, if the, we are able to deconstruct this, I, I would say this to you, uh, uh, Andrew, that we must take back the image of Dr. King. So. Yes. The image of Dr. King, everybody has frozen him. 1963 on the mall, I have a dream. And everybody loves Dr. King now that he's dead. But when he was living, he was considered the most hated man in America. As a matter of fact, J. Edgar Hoover said within one particular statement that he is the most dangerous man in America. You don't get wiretaps that were signed off by the Kennedys uh, unless you are a dangerous man. But the reason being that we must take this image back is because he forces us to look at faith and spirituality in a completely different way. Because uh, during his time period, nobody really liked Dr. King. The holiness folk didn't like him because he wasn't sending people to hell. Uh, evangelicals had issues with him because uh, he refused to separate the body and the spirit. In other words, the evangelical movement had moved to a point where it could care less about what happened in the world as long as they had their personal Jesus. Amen. And then there were those uh, uh, who couldn't stand him in the liberal church because it was the liberals who he was responding to with the letter to the, from the Birmingham jail. He was responsive to those who said, why don't you just wait? You're moving too fast. And his answer was, I, my people have been here since 1619. You're talking about wait? 
Uh, but also even the progressives had issue with him. Why don't you drop all of this spiritual stuff and just have a nice Marxist analysis of everything? But he would say back that you do not know from whence I come that the, the type of faith that I have does not come from Europe, but is one that has been dipped within the Africanity of my ancestors. Because Ebenezer is my home, Morehouse is my school, America is my congregation, and I want you to know that Jesus is my Savior. That is the way the king would frame it coming out of a particular tradition, hated when he was living because of his radicalism. There in Riverside Church in 1967, he climbed that stone pulpit and in a sermon entitled Beyond Vietnam, took America to task, saying that if you, the things that are destructive to this country are racism and poverty and militarism. At that moment, the NACP was nowhere to be found. Those who were in core left, and even those who were in SCLC had issue with him. And he went on to say that, how can you say I'm supposed to be nonviolent? And here is America that is one of the greatest purveyors of, not, of violence in the world. That we must be consistent, and I must use my voice. Our memories must be shifted if we are to dismantle white supremacy. Let's stop romanticizing our past. If I may break it down this way, I'm always wondering, every time someone is talking about, let's Ameri make America great again. That's a strange statement to me, because I want to know what year are you talking about? Because it was 1955, I couldn't vote. If it was 1919, a whole lot of other people couldn't vote. Oh, was it, what, what year are you talking about? Because we have this romanticized nature of what our history is about. And so we must speak truth to power. We must regain uh, the legacy and the image of Dr. King. But the other thing that we must also do is that we must be willing to hear the blues of our nation of those who've experienced the blues in this country. That we must be willing to face tragedy but not fall into despair. And that is part of our problem. That is part of the issue that nobody wants to face tragedy. Nobody wants to deal with despair. Nobody wants to deal with the blues. But I gotta tell you that if you want to play any gospel music, you better know the blues. Because blues and gospel go hand in hand. It is that great person by the name of Thomas Dorsey who is considered to be the father of gospel music. But before he played that gospel music, Precious Lord, take my hand, he was playing in a juke joint. That's a club for those who do not know. <laughs> he was playing the blues in that particular club and took those same chords and then began to place some different lyrics on top of it. And that is the birth of gospel music. The precious Lord take my hand that you've heard from Mahalia Jackson, who started in New Orleans but made her way to Chicago, is simply what they call a blue slow drag song with some different lyrics on top of it. That we must be willing to speak the blues and be honest about those blues if we are to dismantle what we call white supremacy. The blues, hmm, the blues. The opioid crisis, those are blues. But there is something sinister within the way that we frame the language. We talk about public health, public health crisis, because we are talking about rule and white people, but when we were talking crack, it was not a public health crisis. It was the criminalization of the black body. 
Because we have to be willing to speak the blues and understand that black bodies are still being used for profit, better known as privatized jails. We must be willing to speak the blues collectively, the blues that people speak and hear on a day-to-day basis. I come to you from Chicago, Chi-town, as they say, and we have the largest mental health facility in the nation, the Cook County Jail. There is no other larger facility because out of the 8,000 people who are there who are incarcerated, about 4,000 of them are on medication. Even the sheriff who runs the jail has been fighting to release 4,000 people. And we've been fighting in reference to this idea of bail, uh, which is really a penalty upon the poor. One young man could not raise $720 and spent almost three years in jail. Now, for those of you who are not very familiar with the system, jail is where you go before you go before the judge. Prison is where you go after you have been committed. Uh, that they have decided that you are guilty. In other words, you're innocent in jail because you haven't been proven guilty, but yet we have people languishing, and most of them people of color, and many of them who have mental health challenges. We've got to be able to speak the blues effectively in this country if we are to dismantle. Can America be saved? America has issues with the blues, America wants to romanticize a prophet, and America has difficulty speaking truth to power. But I still am somewhat of an optimist with cynical moments in my life. I still believe that this nation, if the nation is honest, can be saved. How do I know? Well, I believe that without a, within a particular tradition, Uh, that we can see what can happen when we are honest and what can happen when our traditions merge together. That we must learn in a very unique and powerful way. We must learn how to sing new songs in this age. What are these songs that I speak of? I'll tell you another story, the story many people have probably heard, a person by the name of John Newton, who is the writer of Amazing Grace. People love that song. Saved a wretch like me. And they love to kind of romanticize John Newton. That somehow that uh, he heard the voice of God. But John Newton was an enslaver, a peddler in black flesh. And there he was upon a ship, the story goes, and a storm came. And at that moment, he prayed a prayer about amazing grace that saved a wretch like him because the storm did not destroy the ship. And that's when he penned this great song. That's one side. But if you find out a little bit more about the song Amazing Grace, you'll find out some interesting things. It says, if you go to the Library of Congress, words by John Newton, melody unknown. And the reason the melody is unknown is because Amazing Grace is not a European hymn. It is a hymn that comes out of the pentatonic scale. That means that using the five notes, using the black keys on the piano, And that is what you can do with spirituals. Any spiritual in the African-American tradition, you can play on the black keys because it is pentatonic coming out of that African tradition. And what some say in places like South Carolina and Georgia is they got the story wrong about John Newton. This is what they got wrong. It wasn't Newton who stopped uh, the storm. Newton's prayers didn't do anything. But there was a sound coming from the ship down in the hull that was so beautiful and amazing. 
It made its way up to heaven, and an angel tapped God on the shoulders and said, you need to hear your children sing. And God bent over from the banister of heaven and said, shh, and stop the storm. Stop that particular storm. But the unique thing about Amazing Grace, it is a song that you cannot play unless you have the black keys. In other words, you'll have grace, but it won't be amazing. <laughs> In order for it to be Amazing Grace, merging these two traditions together, something unique happens in the process. And that's what happens when we begin to recognize the power that we have within our traditions that do not fall out of a hierarchy and we find a new song. We have done that over and over again in America, especially in a place called New Orleans. NOLA, one of my favorite cities. I believe it's the true American city on so many levels. Those who came from Haiti made their way to New Orleans. They did not come from manure holes. They came from a great tradition where they had already liberated their space and liberated other countries in Central and South America. But they made their way to places called New Orleans. And in New Orleans on Sundays, you were allowed to be free, if you were an enslaved African, to be able to roam around the city. And they heard uh, French syncopations, and they heard Native American people singing and merged these traditions along with Spanish and with German. And all of a sudden, new music came about that we called jazz. But what is so beautiful about jazz is that jazz is actually the first introduction of true democracy that breaks down white supremacy within its sonic resonance. Another way to say it is jazz does something that they can't do on Capitol Hill. <laughs> what does jazz do? Jazz music is so powerful that everybody has the right to solo in jazz. What does jazz do? Jazz takes elements that shouldn't play together. You know the saxophone comes out of the marching band and it's supposed to be in the band. The piano is that classical European instrument that is to be played over here. The trap drum set using these syncopated rhythms that come out of the African tradition. And then the bass, which you're supposed to use a bow, but they decide to use their fingers. They take elements that should not go together and begin to play together. And the beautiful thing about jazz is that jazz music says that everybody has the right to solo. In other words, the piano does not force the saxophone to sound uh, like, uh, like it. And the drummer does not force uh, the bass player to sound just like uh, the drummer. Each one has their own unique tradition to be able to sing and to be able to bring something new to the table. Jazz music, yes, teaches us something about how to dismantle. We need a jazz democracy where people are willing, can bring their tradition to the table. They can bring their perspective to the table. They can bring their blues to the table. And we can then begin to work out a new song in the process. But there is too much fear in this nation today. Fear that you will lose your place and lose your privilege. But the beautiful thing about jazz music is that something new is created that is more beautiful than what was there before. And that, I believe, is what we must do in America. Create a new song. Sing new songs. A new sonic resonance that will be so powerful that our children and our children's children will thank us for giving us the vocabulary of creating something new. We are at a unique moment in this country. 
And the question for us is, can America be saved? I think America might be able, might be saved. It might be saved if we are willing to have people who are those who are like Baird Rustin, who are willing to organize a Quaker and gay, but saying, I will not disrupt my faith, nor I will disrupt on who I am. Someone like Septima Clark, uh, with her beauty and her power, who is able to stand toe-to-toe with those who said a woman has not, does not have the ability to lead a movement. Someone with the, the rhetoric and the power of a James Baldwin or someone with the poetic resonance of a Gardner Taylor. We can, I believe, if we draw from these different traditions, we can make a new song, a jazz song, that plays across the traditions that we come from, and something unique will, be, will happen in the process. And maybe we'll even learn what amazing grace is all about. John, can you hook me up with some amazing grace? <laughs> Sister Jackie, why don't you lead us in song? traditions together, a Creole, a gumbo. If we can start making some gumbo in America, maybe America can be saved. God bless you. <laughs>